south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 222, covering the week of July 6th through July 10th, 2020. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media accounts at our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. That's A-B-B-E-V-I-L-L-E, institute.org. While you're there, give us an email address. We'll give you a free ebook exploring the Southern tradition. You'll get our daily dose of Dixie Money through Friday. Also, while you're there, uh, make sure that you click on that support tab. We exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you click on that tab, you've got different options for supporting the Institute. You can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. You can also click on that shop portion of the support tab, and it'll take you out to our web store where you can get your Abbeville Institute apparel. It's high-quality embroidered material, so you can advertise the Institute. People will ask you what that thing is, and you can tell them. And it's also going to help us indirectly uh, by uh, buying that product. So it's a, it's a great way to support the Institute, and you get something really cool out of it as well. Also, if you click on that Amazon t- uh, button at the top of the page, you support the Abbeville Institute through the Amazon Smile program. Every time you shop at Amazon, a little bit of money goes back to the Institute. So that's also a great indirect way to support the Institute. We have all kinds of things to do like that. If you like what we do and you want to share it around, please do so on social media. Rate this podcast wherever you get podcasts. That'll help expand our reach and our listenership, readership, whatever you want to say. Um, And we do appreciate your support that way as well. So let's talk about the week that was at the Abbeville Institute. A lot of stuff happening. Um, One of the first things, of course, the South lost a great bard, and that was Charlie Daniels, who died on Monday of this week, July 6th. Uh, we, We were running the Southern Rock for the Apocalypse series for several weeks before this, all during the COVID pandemic. We still haven't finished that series yet. And um, just so happens that Charlie Daniel dies in the middle of this. Now, he didn't die from COVID. He had a stroke. Uh, he was 83 years old. And so, uh, you know, you get to that age and, and sometimes uh, things happen. And so we ran a piece, or at least I, I wrote a little piece about Charlie Daniels uh, with some of the tunes that we hadn't put into the Southern Rock for the Apocalypse series yet. And there's still a couple of more that we might add in from Charlie Daniels, some stuff that uh, we, we didn't put in that. Um, I didn't have much time to, to scribble it out before we had to have it up for publication. But uh, certainly, Charlie Daniels is indicative of and personifies everything that we try to do at the Institute. To have a positive affirmation of the South and Southern culture and Southern people, that's something that's very important to us. And we do the political stuff, but in But in reality, you can't have the political without the cultural. You can't have political independence unless you have a people that are cohesive enough to maintain it. Uh, When you look at the American War for Independence in 1775 to 1783, and you look at what that was, it wasn't a national independence movement. It was local independence movement supporting a broader context of independence. Potentially, you could have had a situation where some of the colonies were independent and some weren't. 
And essentially, you had that over time. And look, as the British occupied various areas of the, the British Army, occupied various areas of the colonies, you had some areas that were more independent than others. And you had a substantial number of loyalists within North America who did not want independence and, of course, fought against it. I think in the South, the most famous battle where you had the American loyalists against the American patriots is the Battle of Kings Mountain. But um, you, you had this uh, regional and state push for independence over a national push for independence. It's something that you, I, most people miss about that American war for independence. They don't get that part of it. Uh, when you look at some of the Southerners, for example, they were more concerned about fighting for the independence of their state than they were about any uh, you know, vague United States. You look at uh, the leaders of independence in South Carolina and Rutledge and Marion and Sumter and Pickens. These men were South Carolinians first in Georgia, you know, James Jackson and others. The, he was a Georgian first. I mean, you had these individuals. Nathaniel Macon was a North Carolinian first. You had these individuals who were members of their states first and then some broader context of the United States second. Was, and so the Continental Army was something else. These men were fighting just for their own independence, for their own backyard. And so American independence at that point was not a national movement, but a much more localized movement. I think that's something we have to remember about that. And the same thing with uh, the war between 1861 and 1865. You certainly had Southern nationalism at that point um, that had developed over years. But even there, I mean, you had uh, the local mattering. I mean, units were still marched off by uh, towns and states, and uh, many times these... these uh, Units were, uh, these military organizations were comprised of people that had known each other for generations. Families that had been together for generations. And so that local still mattered, both, you know, north and south, that was still the case. This American nationalism was created later. And so that culture mattered, that regionalism, that, that cohesiveness. And Charlie Daniels provided that. If you look at a lot of what Charlie Daniels did, Charlie Daniels band, and you know, he had a song written for just about every state in the South. A couple of be beautiful ones for the Carolinas, which, of course, is where he's from. But, you know, Tennessee and Texas and Georgia and Alabama. Um, he had them. He had these tunes. And uh, he had songs for the West, too, which, again, another miscomponent of Western history is the fact that the South was so important in the Mountain West, in the development of the Mountain West. So Charlie Daniels was, in many ways, um, a lyrical and musical expression of the Southern tradition, and he knew it. He knew it. And uh, when I, I wrote in this little piece, there was an interview I read that he gave back in the 70s when he was recording at Capricorn Studios in Macon. And this was on the tail end of the... Southern rock movement. It was the late 70s. And they asked him, you know, what do you think about this, you know, Southern rock movement? And what do you think about Capricorn Studios and its place and all that? And Charlie Daniels supposedly spit in his cup, his dip cup, and he said, well, it's probably not going to mean much. You know, I'm, I'm not going to quote exactly what he said, but it's not going to mean much. I th he thought in long term. Because I think Daniels could see the writing on the wall. Things were changing. Uh, America by the 1980s 
was changing. Uh, and uh, now, I mean, here we are 30 years later, and I mean, look at everything that's changed from that particular period of time. Uh, and it was just taking root there in the late 70s. It had been going on for about a decade, this assault on Western civilization within the United States itself. It hadn't really had time to, to uh, grow a tree yet, but now it has. I mean, and that tree is bearing fruit, and it's the social justice warriors who are taking aim, the Marxists who are taking aim at everything traditional in America. And that is a major problem. This is why the Institute is so important and valuable now because of the things that we try to do, at least just the message we try to portray. Of course, with COVID and other things, it's very hard to do some of the things we want to do. We've got a couple of projects going on in the background that for educational purposes. Uh, but it, it, the podcast, the articles, these are things we try to do to keep this uh, tradition alive and what's true and valuable in this tradition alive. <clears throat> but this is going to be a daunting task in the 21st century. Um, I think the only positives, and I try to be positive about these things, you know, you, you look back at Ireland, the green flag was forbidden in Ireland. Uh, you had to fly it underground. You had to show it underground. It was illegal. And now it's not. You look at uh, you know, the pipes in Scotland, the bagpipes, which were illegal in the 18th century forward, and, and now they're not. So it could be the dark, it could be darker before the dawn, in other words. I mean, we could get to some really dark times in the United States because it seems like the headwind is against us. So what we can do is just try to explain what is valuable and what is positive about the South and the Southern tradition. And music is a great way to do that. And I think, you know, Charlie Daniels was a great expression of that. <clears throat> Unfortunately, he was 83 years old. And, uh, you know, we need, we need younger folks who are trying to do the exact same thing that had the same stories and experiences and grew out of that Southern culture and Southern tradition. And they're out there. I mean, I think one of the best uh, albums in this way is... Um, or one of the best artists in this way is a, it's a country artist named Brent Cobb, who is uh, just doing great stuff. You know, his, his last album is entitled Providence Canyon, which is named after uh, the what's called the Little Grand Canyon in Lumpkin, Georgia. And I mean, he's a Georgian, and you can hear it in him. You can hear it in his music. You know, Tyler Childress. You've got these people out there that are regionalists. Uh, but one thing I'll say about some of that is that it's, I mean, it's gritty and dark stuff oftentimes. You know, you, you wish there was a, a more glowing, positive affirmation of what Southern society is. And maybe it's just all gritty and dark now. I don't know, but uh, I don't think so. But uh, that, that's, I mean, there are some, some positives out there. And then we have, of course, the rest of the tier for the week. And we're, we're facing this Marxist onslaught. And there's no other way to describe it. Cultural Marxism is on, the run, is on the move. It's trying to eradicate anything that is valuable that would show tradition in America. And, of course, one of the targets for that is John C. Calhoun. And on Monday, we ran a piece by Lee Cheek and Kerry Roberts, which explained, I think, very well uh, in one of the things that people miss with John C. Calhoun. And Anytime you hear the name Calhoun, the first thing, I remember talking to a colleague about this, you know, I said, you know, John C. Calhoun was uh, to him, was the greatest you know, political thinker of the 19th century. Well, he might have been brilliant, but there's that positive good thing. That's all anybody knows. And it's just a platitude now. Well, there's that positive good thing. 
They don't even know what it means. They probably have never even read the speech. I don't I, I don't know if my, my colleague had read the speech or has read the speech. I don't know. I didn't ask. I didn't press it. I said, well, uh, but it, you know, my response to that was it wasn't even unique for Calhoun. I mean, that was the American position on slavery in the 19th century, generally across the sections in the 1830s. And I asked if he had ever read Larry Tides' book, Pro-Slavery, and he said, no, I've never read that. Well, Larry Ties makes the case quite effectively that that's the case. And so I think uh, Dr. Cheek and, and, uh, and Dr. Roberts do a fantastic job explaining this in this particular piece. Calhoun, he said, could be ill-timed, and you know, it was at the point, but he's simply pointing out and that this institution is not, there's no political solution to it. He's not talking about a moral situation. He's not talking about a positive good in that way. There's no political solution to this problem, so we should move on from it. And his thing was, look, if it's so bad, if you're saying it's so bad, then end it right now. But nobody's willing to do that. Not north, not south. Nobody's willing to do that. And so we need to move on because this is not going to be a productive discussion. And they point to Calhoun as being a moderate, which he was. Calhoun was a unionist his entire life. He was never a secessionist. He said that could happen. He said that it's potentially, it's possible, which was not alien to the founding generation either, who promoted secession several times. But what he's saying is, you know, in order to save the union, we need to have a union that benefits and burdens all equally. That was one of his beliefs. And if you have these radical abolitionists, where, which were at the time, um, you know, we look back on that now and say, well, I mean, it's, you know, we're, we don't believe in slavery. Uh, you know, why? How could these people believe in slavery? Well, because it had been handed down to them. They didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to deal with it. Even the founding generation didn't necessarily know how to deal with it. I mean, colonization was a possibility in their mind, but that was very expensive. Even in the North, slavery was ended gradually over time. But then you had the immediate abolitionists in the middle of the 19th century who were much more violent, trying to stir up sectional hatred and animosity. And Calhoun was saying these people are dangerous. This, ex this was exactly what uh, the critique of the abolitionists. These people are dangerous for the stability of the United States because most people in 1830 were not radical abolitionists. They might have been anti-slavery, but they weren't radical abolitionists. They weren't bent on eradicating the institution immediately. And I think one thing that they don't point out, uh, which is what you know, needs to be said about Calhoun, they do say that this was his least novel position. I mean, this was something that people North and South had said. It's important to, to note the North, which all of pro-slavery ideology in America originated in the North. The very first pro-slavery treatise ever written in North America was written in 1701 by a guy named John Saffin in Massachusetts. A minister, John Saffin. And that defense of slavery in the United States, in the colonial period and then into the United States, was found most often in places like Yale and Harvard and New England. And this, is, this makes sense in many ways because that was the first area to begin to abolish it. And so you had ministers, theologians, who were pushing a pro-slavery agenda. And in the 19th century, there was a... Of course, in Alabama, you had a man named Henry Delamar Clayton. His wife uh, wrote a book entitled White and Black Under the Old Regime. And she pointed out the reason that they all believe that 
slavery was okay is because they were taught it in church. So Calhoun's position is not novel. It's not unique. It was a position that many people in the United States had in the 1830s. But of course, it's now been pegged to him as the only thing that he ever did. Calhoun was the most important statesman in the United States between the 1820s and the 1850s. There's, there's no doubt about it. Calhoun understood banking better than most people did in the United States. Calhoun's positions on government, decentralization, republicanism, all the things. And I like the fact at the end of the piece, they point this out. Uh, they say that for Calhoun, the need to depoliticize was intrinsically joined with the need to denationalize. This is why Calhoun's approach to those issues that troubled him most reflected complicated variations of the same strategy, whether it was monetary reform, internal improvements, or filling the officer ranks of the United States military. Calhoun's strategy was to remove these matters from the ill-suited realm of national political solutions. For without the possibility of a genuine consensus on these matters, there was only room for hypersensitivity, bad feelings, partisan pandering, and occasional self-righteous rage. So this was the problem. Depoliticized was denationalized. And so denationalization, this, this idea, and this is, this is important for us now, it's the idea of regionalism. Nationalism is a problem. American nationalism is a problem because you see somebody in, in Minnesota is going to have a problem with something in Alabama, and this is illogical. It really is illogical. It, it's, not, it's not anchored to anything in reality. Why would it matter in my life what goes on in Minnesota? I don't care. I really don't care at all what happens in Minnesota. I don't care what happens in California. I don't care what happens in Washington State. I don't care what happens in Seattle. I don't care what happens in Massachusetts, Boston. I don't care what happens in New York. I care what happens in my little corner of the world because that's what affects me the most. And so when you nationalize every problem, you create problems because you get, as they say, the partisan pandering and occasional self-righteous rage. But there are reasons why everything is nationalized in America, because it helps factions, because of the pandering. And one of the reasons that we have all of this nationalism politically is because of the 17th Amendment. Now, if you go back and you look at the original Constitution, we know that senators were selected by the states. And this was done on purpose because it was there to protect the states. In fact, that very phrase was used by defenders of that provision of the Constitution. One of the most important being Roger Sherman of Connecticut, who said, look, the Senate is there to preserve the independence of the states. So the Senate, because of the powers that it had, if you look at the structure of the United States Constitution, what the Senate does is very important. It's the check on every branch of government. It's the check on the legislative branch because it has to concur with the House, which the House can be much more radical. So it has to concur with the House on spending bills, on other priorities. So it has a check on the legislative branch. It's a check on the executive branch because it gets to ratify treaties, which was the most important function of the executive branch, foreign policy. So it has a check 
on foreign policy. It's also a check on the executive branch when it comes to appointments. And those appointments, of course, affect the judicial branch. So it's a check on the judicial branch because it gets to decide who goes and sits on the federal courts. And you know what else it can do? Uh, it, can, it will be the final arbiter in impeachments, which, of course, would affect the judicial and executive branch as well. The vice president of the United States presides over the Senate. That's his only job constitutionally. But it is the check on the entire system. And who comprised this check on the entire system? Well, the states. You see, this clearly shows that the states were the fundamental building block of the United States central government. The states controlled, and so this was actually brought up, the states controlled everything. It was brought up that what the states could do if they didn't like what was going on is just withhold their senators. They won't send them. And if enough states did that, well, then there's no business because everything is going to be blocked because there's no Senate. So they can't pass legislation. Nothing can get approved. Nothing can get ratified. Nothing can happen because the Senate is not in session. So what changed that was the 17th Amendment. And Neil Kumar does a nice job uh, in this uh, review. It's a book review of an older book, uh, but still a worthwhile book, The Road to Mass Democracy, Original Intent in the 17th Amendment by C.H. Hobkey. Uh, and I, I think that uh, when you, I mean, he, he looks at democracy, right, and, and how democracy becomes this religious affliction for Americans. I mean, we worship at democracy. And why? Why do we do that? Well, because it's platitudes again. It's just like Calhoun, positive, good. Democracy, great. It's platitudes. It has no basis in historical fact. I mean, look, the founding generation was very critical of democracy. They thought democracy was a real problem. And which is why they had the aristocratic checks put in place in the general government to ensure that democracy did not destroy America. But we have forgotten that because, again, it's just democracy. We're going to have democracy. Democracy is great. The 17th Amendment did much to nationalize the general government because now you have popularity contests and outside money being funneled in from all over the United States for senatorial contests. We've seen this several times, um, particularly when you have a situation with a razor-thin majority in the Senate for either party. The other party is going to try to oust the party in power by pumping money into races that might affect that outcome. Uh, back several years ago, you had uh, when you had an open seat when Ted Kennedy died. You had an open seat in Massachusetts, and the Republican Party from all over the United States pumped money in to try to get his replacement as a Republican because it was thought, well, if we got a Republican, we're going to knock out the power of the Democrats. What all of that misses, though, and I think this is very important, you miss political culture, and you miss what's really happening in the larger context of America. Just because they have an R behind their name doesn't mean they're going to do anything well. In fact, it usually means they're not going to do anything well. A conservative, quote-unquote, from Massachusetts is far different from a conservative from Alabama. And even in the South, just because they have an R behind their name, usually that means in the South they're going to do the, the, the real wrong thing when they get to federal office. They're, they're not going to be worth their salt. Now, that's not the case all the time. But 
Uh, when you have the Republican Party being influenced by the neoconservatives who their primary agenda is, and they've made it clear, and a lot of conservatives in America have, look, who cares if the Confederate monuments come down? It's good. Let's take them down. Now, some of them are starting to backpedal on this because they realize what's happened. Oops. We, we've said this now. Oh, my gosh. They're, I mean, I didn't, they weren't going to come for Washington. Oh, yeah? Well, we've been saying it for years. Of course they're going to come for Washington. Of course they're going to come for Jefferson. Are you that stupid that you can't see it? And I think many of them were that stupid that they can't see it. There was just a little piece in the American Conservative from one of the editors there. She writes this piece trying to appeal with a rational argument to irrational, immature, and petulant little children that they shouldn't take down Confederate monuments. And her thing was, well, I used to be for it because I thought that's a Southern gent genteel thing to do. Well, if you don't like it, if it shows you offense, well, we'll take it down. That's not, that's not the Southern thing to do. That's weak. Southerners, didn't, well, if you don't like what we're doing, uh, you know, if you don't like who we are, well, we'll just let you legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. Who, yeah, we're just going to be Southern and just say, fine, Yankees, you can legislate for us. Yeah, that's the Southern thing to do. I mean, <laughs> um, I don't think so. I mean, you can go back throughout the entire history of the South and you won't find that. So, uh, you know, the fact that uh, she comes out, well, maybe we should leave one statue up, Robert E. Lee. We should leave that one up uh, because, you know, he, it's, it, we, sh we should definitely leave that one up. Now, she does bring up the hypocrisy of the left. And, you know, one of the great heroes of the, of the left, particularly African-Americans on the left, is, a, is an African warlord who was a slave trader and a brutal slave trader at that. And, for example, one of the uh, Coates who has written uh, several articles very critical of the South, and he's named his son for this African slave-trading warlord. I mean, can you get any more hypocritical than that? But regardless, um, I, I, you can't rationalize with these people. It's either they have to stay or they go. I mean, that's, that's it. And in order for them to stay, you're going to have to have people with a backbone, and thankfully, we have some of those people uh, out there. I mean, uh, the piece that we ran on Thursday uh, by Stuart Jones. Stuart Jones is a member of the South Carolina House of Representatives state legislature, and uh, he is working behind the scenes to try to get some legislation passed that will protect Confederate monuments. And that will, most importantly... Uh, maybe work against some of the indoctrination centers that we call schools in the United States. But I mean, we'll see where all this, what happens with this. But I mean, there are people out there who are trying. They're trying. And um, his little piece on, you know, can liberty survive the Marxist purge? Um, he's, of course, saying, well, maybe. I think that he's being a little bit optimistic. If the Marxists really have their way, there'll be nothing left. I mean, they will come after everything. It will be year zero. It will be another Marxist, uh, Cambodian-style, I think, revolution. This is what they really want. You look at the amount of physical damage they're doing to areas. People are fleeing in droves. Everyone's getting out of the city. Nobody wants to be there anymore because uh, they're cesspools. And so um, it's, it's mass exodus, and the areas, I mean, it's becoming awful. Uh, you know, Jefferson pointed this out back in the 18th century, you know, 19th century. Cities are awful. I mean, there's, 
There's nothing valuable to a city. Um, ultimately, ultimately. So we've got uh, we've got some some real problems, and I think Randall Ivy Randall Ivy's piece on Friday, which is a long, it's a prose poem, is the way he described it. But who these people are? I mean, he calls them like locusts. They're just there to devour, and they don't they don't know anything. This is the great problem with America right now. It really is. We've created you know John Dewey's education system, which is a, a nightmare for modern America where it came down to you know, the most important thing a school can do is socialize people. Education was secondary. But not only that, it was to replace the family, it was to replace the center, the parental unit, with the school. And you've seen what that's done now over decades and decades of use. And now Dewey himself tried to rein some of this in, but his acolytes ran with it. I mean, they wanted to replace the nuclear family with the school, to make it to where the nuclear family doesn't matter, to make it to where uh, the school and the teachers become the center of a child's life, and then you pump in the doctrinaire. And the doctrinaire is Western civilization is bad, the South is bad, and you find it not just on the left, but also on the right. They don't say Western civilization is bad, but they pick, I mean, and I'll just use Glenn Beck, Right? Or Rush Limbaugh, major quote-unquote conservative voices who are so critical of the South, what they're doing is shooting themselves in the foot because the South, the Southern tradition, offers the only conservative counterweight ever in American history. New England's not going to give that to you. And you can say, well, what about the Adamses up in New England? They, uh, in, in one case in particular, they admired the South. They admired the South and the Southern tradition because they could see it. I mean, H.L. Mencken, who was at one point you know, very critical, and of course he's from Maryland, but very critical of things about the South, recognized that the Old South was the only truly conservative traditional culture in American history. It was the only beautiful thing the, the United States ever had. And this is what we're trying to destroy through cultural Marxism. Not us, but of course the forces against... And you, you wonder what you know a Confederate flag or a Confederate monument has to do with actions that took place in Minnesota. Absolutely nothing. But it's uh, it's diverting the real issue onto... It's, it's displacing it onto something else. And that's the real issue in America today. You have, you have really stupid people running around doing things. Um, and you don't even know which what's going to come up next. I mean, take your pick of the next outrage, and I think it's going to be there. Um, is democracy itself even going to be under attack? Because you know, democracy is allowed for elections of people that could oppress others. I mean, is this going to be under attack? I don't know. But um, I think that Randall Ivey's... Uh, Prose is very good, and uh, the the piece itself is fantastic, uh, and so is everything else published this week. I mean, I, I you know we keep having these very good weeks. I think we've had a lot of great material in the last several weeks, um, and so if you, one thing I will mention: if you want to write for us, you know, go ahead and, and try to submit a piece. Um, you may not get it published, but you know it's worth a shot. So, all that said. Um, 
I'll leave you just with, you know, I think that Charlie Daniels back in the 70s thought the South was going to do it again. Hopefully in the 21st century, the South will do it again. We'll see. Until next time, good game.